Welcome to Which Decade is Tops Pops, Season 2, Episode 2. Our magic randomizer this time has thrown up a year suffix of six and a chart position of four. So we're going to be looking at records that are number four in the charts on October the 25th in 1966, 1976, all the way through to 2016. We've got playlists. YouTube playlist, tinyurl.com forward slash which decade 32Y for Spotify, which decade 32S for the extra tracks and bonus bits, which decade 32E. I'm joined by Nick Parkhouse. Hello, Nick. Hello. And I'm joined by DJ Trev. Hello, Trev. Hello there. And before we get cracking some exciting news, we have got two new subscribers to Ooh. our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash which decade tops. So welcome to Craig and welcome to John. We are coasting into the double figures era Great. of our patron. And remember, folks, if we hit 100 subscribers to Patreon by the end of this season, Nick is going to hire 70s hit makers Chicory Tip to do a gig in Nairsborough in North Yorkshire. Let's make this happen, people. Let's make this we need, happen. We really need to work on this support lineup because it's filling up. We've got Daphne and Celeste, Ainsley Harriet, and the Calypso twins. Are we going for Lieutenant Pigeon? Quite possibly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Lieutenant Pigeon. Absolutely, 100%. Yes. Cleopatra coming at you as well. Cleopatra, yeah, good call. What about the guy at White Town? Could we get him? I've only got a small budget, Trev. I can't, you know, I've got to, I've got to blow most of my budget on chicory tips. Yeah, fair enough. Of course, if we get to 100, all the Patreon subscribers will get a ticket. Yes, because <laughs> if, the, if the venue is where I think it will probably be, the venue holds 130. So if we've got 100 Patreon subscribers and the three of us... And then 27 empty seats. Yeah. And the St John's Ambulance for Chicory <laughs> Tip, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, priority booking for all Patreon subscribers should this event come to pass. Okay, let's begin this episode, as we always do, with... The 60s! Oh no! This is The Trogs with I Can't Control Myself. It was the third of seven top 20 hits that The Trogs had between May 1966 and October 1967, and it peaked at number two. It was the follow-up to their only number one, that was With A Girl Like You. Their last hit was Love Is All Around, which we covered in season two when Wet 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 took it to number one in 1994. Then, after the hits dried up, the Trogs heroically released another 25 singles all the way through to 1984, all of them missing the charts. How many of those 25 hits were re-recordings of Wild Thing? That happened later. Oh, did it? Yeah. Right. Um, so 1966, we're you know, approaching the summer of love. Pop music has uh, sort of started to work itself out. We've, the Beatles are doing good stuff. We've got the Stones. Loads of interesting bands have come along. And then arrive the Trogs, who both look and sound like Neanderthals who come along with this driving guitar and say, we'd stick two fingers up at all the progress that pop music has made and replace it with sort of grunting and cavemen. 
Red Bull was so boring and plain looking that his manager had to give him the most exotic name he could find, which was Presley. The drummer is called James Bond. And you're like, what? They were so boring that they had to give them these kind of exotic sounding names to make them sound exciting. And then obviously they turned up. They were massively successful, as Mike says, for a, a year, 18 months, and then disappeared off the face of the earth, not for the want of trying. I suppose it speaks a lot about there are a lot of not just 60s bands. We talked about Tasman Archer last time coming along, having a massive hit, stick it around for 12 months and then essentially disappearing, never to be heard of again. And I feel like in the mid to late 60s, there was a lot of that. A lot of very big new things came along, but people seemed to get bored with it and moved on really, really quickly. Lots of bands that were very big for 12 months, 18 months. We talked about The Herd, came along, had three big hits, never to be seen again. So there's nobody on the planet who doesn't know Wild Thing. Nobody knew what an ocarina was before Wild Thing came along, but everybody knows Wild Thing. With a girl like you is catchy in a sort of ba 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 kind of way. This, I have to say, I find, I know it was banned for being quite suggestive. I actually found it quite leery. It's quite sort of, you know, a bloke in a pub, someone's given him a microphone after he's had a skinful, and this is sort of what he churned out. So he can write songs, as we established with Love Is All Around. You know, when the mood takes it, Reg Presley, he can write a decent song. I don't think this is it. I find it just noisy and leery and beery, and I just think that even by 1966 standards, there was a lot of better stuff than this going along so i'm afraid i can control myself when it comes to this there's lots of things i remember fondly from my childhood you already know this is going to be a right ramble um some of the things i remember fondly from my childhood make complete sense great holidays lovely christmas meals getting luke skywalker's snow speeder for my birthday a week early because i was in hospital always knowing i was loved it makes sense that i would remember those things fondly i was very lucky with my parents there's other things that i remember happily that are less obviously great memories. I remember the drive to swimming on Sunday nights. I mean, was that a particularly happy drive? I don't know. But overall, I think it speaks volumes of just how happy I was as a kid that a functional car journey makes me nostalgic. Then there were things that I remember fondly that make no sense whatsoever until I find out where they came from. And this is one of them. My dad, throughout my childhood, frequently would say, Oh, no. And like, not just when things went wrong, you know, like you've knocked over a cup of tea. Oh, no. Yeah, that makes sense. No, no. He'd just say it randomly. Like, what's on TV? Oh, it's the James Bond film. Oh, no. I don't even want to watch it. No, yeah, I do. My childhood was just punctuated with my dad going, oh, no. I don't think I've ever heard this song before. <laughs> but that opening... Oh, no. And I was like, it was like a flashback. And I mean, it wasn't like a Vietnam flashback, traumatic <laughs> helicopters going over. It was just like, oh, oh, wow. Oh, no. Oh, brilliant. Um, the song's OK. It's vaguely catchy. It's, it's entirely possible I own this on seven inch. My dad gave us all these records, but it's, it's not ringing a bell. But the tune moves along nicely enough. I don't think it's perhaps one of the best records ever. I don't think it's one of the best Trogs tunes. But f for me, the oh, no, I can't get beyond that bit. It's a great way to start a tune. And for whatever reason, be it you know, that it's a timelessly iconic classic piece of songwriting or just the fact that my dad said it a lot. 
this lives immortally for me. I don't think it's an amazing song, but I think it's a really great way to start a track. Did we not establish in season one that your dad played Hey You, the Rocksteady Crew on the way to swimming on a Sunday? Oh, yes. That was a swimming banger. As far as I can work out, my swimming drive time playlist from my dad would have been Hey You, the Rocksteady Crew that I completely did not remember at all, but I knew the lyrics. I just didn't think they went like that. The trogs, I can't control myself, but just the first five seconds of it. And then very definitely the entire 90125 album by Yes, upon which the entire of my musical knowledge and affection is based upon. I guess my dad introduced me to the trogs as well in that there were a very small number of 45s in our household, all of which dated from a party that my parents threw in early 1966. And they asked their friends to bring some 45s with them because my parents didn't buy pop music. So all the records that were brought to that party were the family collection of 45s, and they were not added to for another four years. If I wanted to play records, it was that collection of 45s that I had access to. And Wild Thing was one of them. So, yeah, another parental connection there. Yeah, mid-60s, golden age of the British beat group. So we look at this week's top 10. Along with the Trogs, you've also got Dave D, Dozy Beak and Mick and Titch, The Who, The Rolling Stones and The Hollies. And there's actually only one solo act in the whole of the top 10. That's Jim Reeves is at number one with Distant Drums. It is extraordinary that this song was banned from radio and TV in the UK. I think it was mostly down to the line, your slacks are low and your hips are showing. Apparently, because it was thought that if your hips were showing, then the top bit of your pubes would also be on display. And I think Reg Presley eventually confirmed that many years later. But if there does seem mild by today's standards, perhaps that's a sign of the level of moral degeneracy to which our society has sunk. No longer shocked by such things as possibly visible pubic hair. You could make an argument that the Trogs were the first punk rockers. While Thing had gotten to number one in the US, it did help to inspire a whole wave of garage bands in the US and their music was known as punk rock. 10 years ahead of the Sex Pistols. The Trogs were a big influence for Iggy Pop, also a big influence for the Ramones. Both those acts picked up on the rawness, the crudeness, the simplicity. And the Buscocks in their very early days, they used to perform a version of I Can't Control Myself on stage before they'd written enough numbers of their own. Yeah, Trogs is short for troglodytes. And one of the main characteristics of troglodytes is that they are being deliberately ignorant. And you can hear that willful dumbness here and on Wild Thing. And it's that quality that set the band apart from their contemporaries, because they're almost reveling in their stupidity, which, of course, begs the question, were they really that dumb or was it all an act? Well, the answer may lie in something called the Trogs Tapes which surfaced on bootleg cassette in 1970 and went on to acquire mythical status in the music industry of the 70s as copies of these tapes were passed around. I've known about the Trogs tapes for years, and I actually sat down to listen to the Trogs tapes this afternoon on YouTube. It's 11 minutes long. This is a recording of the band three years after the hits dried up, the back of the studio in 1970, <laughs> They're trying to record a track called, ironically, Tranquility. 
the track never gets recorded, never gets released because the session falls apart in disarray and the band just are at absolute loggerheads with each other in the most unbelievably sweary and hilarious way. It is pure Spinal Tap. I'm sure that the people who made Spinal Tap must have heard the Trogs tapes. It gets progressively more hysterically funny the longer you listen to it, and it absolutely confirms the fact that Trogs were no towering intellects. But after I Can't Control Myself, the Trogs did begin to mellow out a bit because you've got any way that you want me. That's a nice palady thing. Love is all around. But they didn't let go entirely of that old dumbness i found a 1969 b-side of theirs called number 10 downing street honestly it sounds like something an eight-year-old could have written i'm going to put it on the extracts and bonus bits playlist astonishing that they thought it worthy of release anyway i like this record a lot i like dumbness in pop i like the lack of filter on this it's pure primeval lust and it hasn't been dressed up prettified in any way but it also gets mashed up in my head with love is all around there's a distinct melodic similarity so you've got i take you girl as you're standing there your low cut slacks and your long black hair well that's the same as you know i love you i always will my mind's made up by the way that i feel they've ripped their own song off for love is all around and i didn't realize today until i found myself singing a mashup all around the house i think because I got something of the slightly greasy vibe that Nick got from it. What was that? I'm going to control you like a puppet. I'm going to make you do whatever I want. You know, compared to that, this is still, you know, it's relatively lovely. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Oh, At gunpoint. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bit of, oh, look what you've made me do. It's your fault with your low-hanging, pube-revealing slacks. I've popped off in my pants. And I think there's a noise towards the end of the record, which, again, resulted in the ban, because it suggested the noise at the end of the record sounded like Reg Presley was um, reaching fruition. Well, that's like no ejaculatory noise I've ever heard. That's all I can say. Right, then, let us proceed in an orderly and dignified fashion to... This is How's That by Sherbert. It was their only UK hit. It peaked to this position of number four, but in the band's native Australia, where there were big stars, it was their 12th of 15 top 20 hits between 1971 and 1978, and their second Australian number one. On the first listen of this, it sounded like the bass was turned up way too high in the mix. But then sort of my ears got used to it and it's the bass takes the lead. There's a bit of a Santana solo later on, but it's the plodding bass that actually moves this along for me. And then I think once the strings and the chorus kick in and the contrast is underlined between those bits, I think this is positively uplifting. I've definitely never heard it before, but it does outshine a lot of the 70s stuff that we've had so far. Musically, we've remarked that a lot of the 70s tracks, or generally the 70s, never sounds particularly forward thinking. And I do think this could have come out 
much earlier, but there's something that actually seems to elevate this almost to, to have a timeless quality, even though it's not an instantly recognisable classic. It also could have come out later. You don't hear it and go, oh, yeah, that is definitely of the 70s. Now, if you check out the Top of the Pops performance, there is an outrageously wonderful crushed velvet jacket. He's got this bizarre mod mullet combo and then there's a peak 1960s scarf so visually what this makes you expect is one of the you know many 70s throwback almost borderline novelty artists that we've had so far i mean i'd never heard of them i didn't know what to expect whatsoever and then once it starts it's actually i think it's a pretty classy piece of pop music it's not prog but there's something proggy in there that brings to mind the artists who were on the edge of prog like asia and kansas and that type of thing it's, it's maybe the vocal harmonies and cinematic strings but either way this is pleasantly taken me by surprise the more i listen to it the more i really like the production and i think with the bizarre and alien sounding nature of the bass the way that the production makes that work i think it's great work and yeah i really enjoyed this i saw it written down and put it on i thought i don't know what this is and then by the time i got to the chorus i thought i absolutely do know what this is trev says he never heard it before and you know it was their one hit in the uk so i was playing it and my wife came wandering in so my wife is australian for those listeners who don't know she's australian grew up in australia she lived there till she was in her late 20s so came in and immediately knew all the words. And you think, oh, right, that's interesting. Okay. So obviously it was a number one hit. Sherbert in Australia were massive. So they won the best band at the equivalent of like the Smash It Awards or something, five years running in the 1970s. They'd sold their 10 platinum albums in Australia. They were the first Australian band to sell a million dollars worth of records. They were absolutely huge. And their lead singer is a fellow called Daryl Braithwaite. So Daryl Braithwaite was also doing a sort of Donny Osmond thing in that he was having solo hits at the same time that Sherbert were recording. He had a number one hit in 1971 with a cover of You're My World, was having hits, solo hits, often written with his band members, even while Sherbert were massive. So they tried to go on, they renamed themselves the Sherbs in the 80s and tried to go on and have a few more hits, and that wasn't very successful. In the late 80s, he went solo, their lead singer, Daryl Braithwaite. And again, he is Australian music royalty in that kind of heritage. Everybody knows him. When Harry Styles performed in Sydney in March this year, Daryl Braithwaite was the guy who got on to duet with him on stage in Sydney, right? So he is like a Phil Collins, Tom Jones level Australian music legend. He had a massive number one in Australia, Daryl Braithwaite, in 1990, a song called The Horses, which was ranked, I think, number 12 in the greatest Australian hit songs of all time. Sherbert, uh, how's that? was 42, I think, in that list. It's a little bit late 80s, early 90s production, but it's really, really good stuff. And he's 74. He sustained a career from the early 70s till now. He's absolutely massive. Which brings us to how's that? So obviously there's a cricket thing going on here. You know, how's that? You messed it up. I caught you out. And I think in other hands, it might come quite cheesy that. But I actually think it works incredibly well. I think it makes sort of sense in a kind of narrative way without sounding really cheesy. I love the harmony on it. I love the strings. One of the things I've loved doing this podcast is that even people we've heard of that you don't really know the music and people who you've never heard of have led probably our listeners and us into a deep dive and we've discovered people that we didn't know we loved. I've been listening to Sherbert and to Daryl Braithwaite for a couple of weeks now and I really, really like it. 
And, you know, like Trev says, he had no idea what it was. So, you know, our, our Australian listeners or anybody in Sydney listening to this would be like, what do you mean you don't know what it is? It would be like, you know, somebody in Australia go, oh, I've never heard in the air tonight or, you know. Um, Wonderwall. Wonderwall, yeah. But I, I absolutely love it. It's at the soft end of soft rock, but I just think it's absolutely great. Right. I'm going to take you back to the autumn of 1976. Yes, I'm getting autobiographical again, but I'm going somewhere with this. So I am at boarding school in Cambridge. Yes, I am checking my privilege as I speak. I just graduated from shared dormitories into a smaller shared study. I had two study mates and this felt like an incredible amount of independence because we could have our, our own room in which to hang out. And um, one of my study mates had a nice FM tuner rigged up to a hi-fi so we listened to the radio a lot. And what we were listening to all the way through autumn 1976 was Capital Radio coming out of London, because although we were all the way up in Cambridge, you could pick up the signal from Capital Radio in London. Now, Capital Radio in 1976 was a far cry from the uh, faceless, inflexibly programmed national franchise that it is today. Capital Radio was an independent local radio station, and it was widely regarded as vastly superior to Radio 1. Radio 1 was really quite naff and middle of the road at this stage. So, like, in the afternoon, on Radio 1, the afternoon show was presented by Diddy David Hamilton, but it was also simultaneously broadcast on Radio 2. So it was really schlocky and drossy and syrupy whereas capital radio had the legend that is roger scott absolutely amazing radio dj still talked of in hushed tones to this day so we listened to roger scott capital radio kind of majored on this kind of more sophisticated smooth soft rocking self-consciously quality sort of sounds and there was a lot of that stuff around in the autumn of 1976. So I've looked through the top 50 for this particular week and I've discovered well, there are a lot of songs here that were massive on Capital Radio. Some of them were bigger hits than others. I reckon you could actually make a really good compilation LP out of Capital Radio big tunes of this week in October 1976. In fact, I'm going to give you the track listing in descending order of chart position. So side one, we have got If You Leave Me Now by Chicago. Followed by How's That. Couldn't get it right. Climax Blues Band. Similar bass line to How's That, actually. Love and Affection. Joan Armour Trading. Queen of My Soul. Average White Band. I'd Really Love to See You Tonight by England Dan and John Ford Coley. Opening side two, we've got Randy Edelman, Uptown Uptempo Woman. Track still gives me shivers. Man from Man's Earth Band's Blinded by the Light. Steve Miller Band with Rockin' Me. Daryl Hall and John Oates with She's Gone, Dr. Hook with If Not You, and Lowdown by Boz Skaggs. I'd totally buy that. I'm going to put that on the playlist. There was some fantastic stuff around in the autumn 76, and Capital Radio was busy promoting it. Earlier that year, they'd done a reader's poll to discover what was the greatest single of all time, and the top three listeners' choices really reaffirmed the Capital aesthetic. So at number three, we had Hey Jude. Number two, Bridge Over to Rubbled Water, and the official greatest single of all time was I'm Not In Love by 10CC, and I think this record bears some comparison with 10CC. 
Interesting to hear what you said, Nick, about listening to loads and loads of Sherbert and Daryl Braithwaite and really getting into it. Because I was really excited to do a deep dive into Sherbert. I thought, God, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I thought it was slim pickings from what I heard. There are other Australian number one, Summer Love. It's all right. But the actual Hauser album, God dear me, no. Uh, the phrase ropey old toss springs to mind with that album. I have found one great Sherbert deep cut. And the reason I found it is that I'm working on a book project which involves going through a lot of old record reviews. And I found a review of a Sherbert single from 1977, which ignored the A-side and honed in on the B-side. The B-side is called Love Is Fine. It was released on 45 in September 1977. It's really lovely. It's almost as good. Uh, how's that? I have been wondering, given that I don't think much of the rather material, why Sherbert were just so massive in Australia all the way through the 70s. Well, they certainly had a kind of teen pin-up appeal. You look at publicity photos, there's a lot of deep cleavage and open shirts just knotted at the waist and general bare-chestedness on display. But they're not what you might call classically handsome. There again, neither was Shawaddy Waddy. I went on record with what I thought about Shawaddy Waddy, so let's not go back there. I can certainly see why How's That became a big international hit. It's a gorgeous piece of work. Compared to their other work, or the other work I've heard, it is much more sort of sinuous and funky than a lot of the more sort of clodge hoppy stuff. Loads of great ideas in there. The melody, the arrangement, the production. You've got contrast between laid back funky sections, big climaxes, 10cc style vocal harmonies. You've got a West Coast guitar solo, nice string arrangement. There is never a dull moment all the way through this record. Sounds to me like a fluke. But what a fantastic fluke it is. I thought 10cc when I heard it. I'm glad you said that because mm. that's where I went with it. And I was thinking if I went to see The Feeling and they played oh. this live, that would tick a lot of boxes, I think. <laughs> I made the same connection with The Feeling and I had a hunch that you were really going to like this record, Nick, because I actually thought it would remind you of The Feeling, who I know you really love. Mm. Do you think this gets played at cricket events? Mm. I'm fascinated by sports music bangers because there's loads of football tunes I've recently because the world cup's been on like early doors i've been playing tunes around some of the rugby there's not as many rugby tunes as you kind of expect once you get beyond various versions of swing low sweet chariots you sort of then just move into the world of indian uh, and a bit of country bizarrely uh rhinestone cowboy really hit all the buttons with the rugby crowd now i don't see myself djing cricket events because even though my djing is turgid slow-paced and very marathon-esque <laughs> cricket is like a five-day spectacle isn't it but like if if i was to be doing it and do you reckon i dropped how's that do you think it'd open up like mosh pit i think they do in australia I, I, in all seriousness, I think yeah. they do use it. They re-recorded it in the 2000s for um, the TV cricket coverage. They changed yeah. some of the lyrics and they re-recorded it. So I think they absolutely do use it, yeah. It would make sense, wouldn't it, for like the Australian... Because also, like just from a tunes to play to nationals, we have quite a lot of Australians come in to Foundry on a Saturday night. And, you know, what do you play to Australians? Because I sometimes play ACDC and they look at me confused. Like, I don't think that has the national relevance for them but land down under is absolute fire any nick cave bangers to ignite the dance floor yeah it's, it's not floor filling is it <laughs> nick cave nah. 
Red right hands, maybe? I don't know. I would refer you to Triple M, who is a Australian radio station's Aussist 100 list, which they did in, I think, 2019, which is the top 100 Australian songs of all time. So I think Down Under is number two from memory. But that is full of beds are burning. Oh, yeah. You could play that and get away with that. So what was number one? Oh, it was a band I'd never heard of. And again, I asked Mrs. P about this and she knew what it was. It was some sort of, um, they're like a pub rock band. It's got a weird name. I think they're called Cold Chisel. Oh, Cold Chisel. Yeah, I play Cold Chisel. Yeah, it's a little bit country-fied pub rock, isn't it? Yeah, Kersan, I believe, is the song. Yeah, so I play that, and then there's another one. Yeah, they're quite a decent band, Cold Chisel. Late night at a rock bar, you get that on and people go, oh... Oh, right, yeah. I've never heard of it. Never heard of it. If you were DJing a cricket event, right, and once you've played Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs, and once you've <laughs> played No, 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 19 Not Out by the commentators, and once you've played How's That, you're stuck, aren't you? You're then playing the Duckworth Lewis method out. What's the reggae one that was used? That's Booker T and the MGs, yeah. Yeah, but it's not Green Onions. It is Soul Limbo by Booker T. There yeah. we go, yeah. yeah. So I could go with a deeper cut and play Green Onions by Booker T, and people would be like, all right, I see where he's going. It's like when you play something by the killers that isn't Mr. Brightside. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is time for our next decade. Let's have... This is Status Quo with In The Army Now. It was the 20th of 22 top 10 hits that Status Quo had from 1968 to 1990. Peaked at number two. They did continue having top 40 hits until 2010. And the last of them was a new version of In The Army Now. More on that later. Status Quo have only had one number one in the UK, Down Down, in 1975. But they've had three number twos so there was what you're proposing in 1980 this one in 1986 and the anniversary waltz part one in 1990 in the army now is a cover of a 1982 song by two dutch brothers bolland and bolland who sometimes shortened their name just to the more catchy bolland and their version had top charts in norway and finland it got to number two in sweden but the status quo version was one of Quo's biggest hits internationally. It got to number one in Austria, Germany, Switzerland, Iceland and Ireland. Right. So if you're going to do a music based show about pop music through the decades, it's only a matter of time before you happen upon the Quo. And um, we have landed in the autumn of 1986 with this. So they are sometimes, depending on your point of view, either fairly or unfairly portrayed as this kind of everything sounds the same, three chords, just in a different order. Oh, oh, sweet Caroline, whatever you want, everything sounds the same pub rock band. And then they released In the Army Now, which is not like that at all. Partly, obviously, because it's a cover version. And what they've done with the cover version is it's faithful in sort of lyrical and melodic sense. And they've just essentially replaced the synths with Rick Parfit's driving guitar. I actually like the original. It's quite interesting. It's got some little sprightly synths in it. And, you know, considering it was five years earlier, it's it's actually quite a good tune. Anyway, so I don't really know what to say about In the Army now. So it's an interesting record in the sense that it's not very quo-ish. 
when it came up, I thought, oh, I'm not a Quo fan on the whole. But I recall quite liking this at the time, and it was fine. But you only have to listen to it. The novelty of it wears off incredibly quickly. It's very repetitive. And essentially, it only has sort of one trick, really, and it just repeats it for four minutes. You know, you're in the army now. Oh, oh, you're in the army now. Something, you're in the army now. You're in the army now. So I like the intro. It's got a really interesting intro. You think, oh, this doesn't sound like status quo because it just doesn't go, da 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 Doesn't do that. And obviously, it was massive. It was the 24th biggest selling single of 1986 in the UK, which is bonkers. So I'm trying to come to a conclusion and a decision on it whilst talking, I think, because I haven't really got to one ahead of this recording. So I'm going to say I think it's interesting enough to a point, but then I got fed up with it quite quickly when it just repeats its same thing. And then it does that thing where in the air tonight, which is also, look, let's not beat about the bush. In the air tonight, it's quite boring, right? And it's made by that drum bit. Like you take the drum bit out, it's a fairly vanilla track. That it's a bit the same within the army now. It's plodding along doing its thing, and then right at the end, somebody goes, "Stand up and fight!" And you're like, "Oh, hello, where did that come from?" So I think I've got to say no overall. At least they were trying something different, and at least it's not just the same old quo stuff that they've been chugging out for most of the eighties till that point. I really like status quo. Now by that. I don't mean to say I sit at home and listens to status quo with my slippers on, stroking my chin, going, oh, that's so intelligent. I see what they've done there. I mean, I have seen them live, but that was just because they were on. I was like, hey, I'll go and watch them. But I don't seek out their music. The way that I like them is whenever they come on the radio, I go, oh, yeah, I know I'm going to enjoy it. They don't take themselves particularly seriously. I mean, they have an entire album called In Search of the Fourth Chord. Mm-hmm. But there's no doubt for me, you don't have the kind of success of status quo without being good at it, whatever it is. Like, generally speaking, the songs do sound pretty much the same. Incredibly catchy chorus. It's pub rock. Absolutely. They romp along. They've got a little bit of a gallop. And yeah, it's it's a bit by the numbers. But the thing is, along comes this song and subverts all of that. Now, if you know your quo, then you know that they've got another outlier, Pictures of Matchstick Men. If you put that song next to Down Down, what you're proposing, Paper Planes, not Sweet Caroline, just Caroline, but he says Sweet Caroline. It's not that one, it's the other one. Uh, rocking All Over the World. Pictures of Matchstick Men sounds like Spinal Tap performing Listen to the Flower People. And I think there's quite a lot of Spinal Tap in the entire status quo phenomenon, but they have got hits for days and this it's an outlier for them but i think that's what makes it all the more interesting i remember this being quite a powerful message at the time i know it got a lot of radio play it maybe was more powerful to me because the time that it came out was around the time that joining the army was being touted as a great career prospect for me because no one ever earns a living as a dj sonny um And I don't think this song single-handedly kept me out of the army, but I think it's a great 80s snapshot from a legendary band. I think it loses a point for being a cover, but then it gets the point back by having Noddy Holder on it. So, yeah, this is a solid win for me, this. There was another quo outlier, actually. Yeah, Pictures of Matchstick Men, that came up on the blog version of Which Decade is Top Spots many moons ago, so I know that one quite well. But 
Actually, their other outlier is from late 1979. It's called Living on an Island, and it's as close to a ballad as anything they've recorded. That is probably my second favourite ever Quo song behind Down Down, because Down Down is unassailable. But the reason I love Living on an Island so much is it exactly describes an evening that I spent in the autumn of 1979. So... I was feeling lonely in my empty room. I was waiting for my friend to come. We were going to get high. I did just want to see his face because I was secretly in love with him and he was gorgeous. And his name was Hugh. And there is a Hugh directly mentioned in the lyrics. So that song is very dear to me. I actually went out and bought Living on an Island. That's a digression. Right. There's an extended 12-inch version of the Bolland version of In the Army Now, and that wasn't released in Germany until the end of 1983. Now, that was a period when I was living in West Berlin. I was a student over there, and In the Army Now was in all the shops, and it was getting an awful lot of radio play. It was played on the radio for months, actually, so I was very familiar with it before Status Quo covered it. When you look at the lyrics, you can see why it was so popular in West Berlin in late 83, early 84. The west part of the city was still divided into three zones that were controlled by the British, French and American armies. And the anti-nuclear weapon movement was absolutely at its peak. There were marches all over the place. I, I had a little badge, Petting Stadt Pershing, it said. That means petting instead of Pershing missiles, make love, not war. The big surprise is that Status Quo chose to cover it. Yeah, they'd often release covers of singles because he had rocking all over the world. Wild Side of Life, Something About Your Baby I Like. So the fact they released a cover was much of a surprise. But it's so far away from their usual musical style. And not just the musical style, because there's a social commentary aspect to the lyrics that's pretty much unprecedented for Status Quo. And not only that, but... I'd say the song veers fairly closely towards being an anti-war anthem. But then, as Status Quo and their audience got progressively older and inevitably more conservative, I'm guessing that this song sat less and less comfortably with them because it's hardly a salute to our brave boys and the forces. It's more of an awful warning that if you join up, you will be horribly duped. And this probably explains the band's decision to re-record it in 2010, backed by the Royal Corps of Army Choir, and to release it as a charity single with proceeds being split between the British Forces Foundation and the Help for Heroes charity. And yeah, this was Status Quo's last ever UK hit, feature number 31. Now, on this re-recorded version, the video of which has the band in military fatigues, playing in front of smiling squaddies, there are some small but significant changes to the lyrics, and those change the song into a pro-forces anthem, and they turn the video almost into an army recruitment ad. One example, the original line, your finger's on the trigger, but it don't seem right. That becomes... Your finger's on the trigger. Now it's time to fight. Yay, get in there, lads. I still prefer the original Bolland version. I especially like the extended 12-inch mix because it takes that pivotal moment that Nick referred to, stand up and fight. And then it goes spins off from that into about a three-minute instrumental breakdown, which is mostly just really stark drums. 
and kind of bleak vocal samples. And that kind of, it's like the war has started and the instrumental section gives you a, it, it lets you imagine the horrors that might be taking place. I've seen the song performed live in April 2007, to be exact, not by status quo, but by a Danish singer-songwriter called Tina Deco. I went with a couple of friends to see them live. <laughs> she bore such a strong resemblance to Lisa Kudrow in Friends that there was a moment where she asked if we had any requests, and I hissed to my friends, smelly cats, and we just giggled for the rest of the show. Then, one point in the set, before telling us what she was going to play, she introduced this song in a sort of very grave manner, saying, I'm going to play you a song from the 80s. I, I feel the message is as relevant to us now as it was then. It's a song by Status Quo called In the Army Now. And just everyone just burst out laughing. And she went, I do not know why you are laughing. This is a very serious subject. I do not understand. Why are you all laughing? Part of what made it funny is because it's exactly the sort of protest song. You'd imagine Phoebe Buffay hammering out in the coffee shop in the sort of mistake of belief she was going to change the world. Um, the repetition that Nick had a problem with. I don't have a problem with repetition because it's a story song. So episodes happen and then you're in the army now, just kind of like, provides the pause as it goes from the naive optimism of people joining the forces into the awful reality, what they were led into. But I have a little quiz for you. How many times in the course of this song do the words in the army get sung? That could be in the army now, or it could be just in the army. Your guesses, please. 42. 42. Roxanne, put on the red light. Um <laughs> I don't know who would get drunker quicker if that's what we're doing. I would say 80. Oh, no. Oh, that's a mere 36. Oh, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. Tina Deco is my favourite singer-songwriter of all time. <gasps> I did, deliberately didn't mention that because I thought, well, nobody's going to have heard of Tina Deco, so what's the point of me telling a Tina Deco story about the cover version of In the Army now? But no, Mike went there. It's fine. Were you at that gig at the social? Yeah. With Tim and Sarah? Yeah, I've been to see Tina Deco loads of times. <laughs> I've got some information for you, Nick, in that case. That Tina Deco gig at The Social, not only the first time I met my friends Tim and Sarah, first time I met you. We met, Nick, at that Tina Deco gig, sniggering along to In the Army Now. It's a very important song in our friendship. She performed it for years whenever I saw it. She recorded it, I think. It's on an EP of hers, I think, as well, yeah. I was unaware that Crow had gone back and re-sung it and redid it, changed it, and I can't believe they did. But that is a bit of a massive sellout, isn't it? Because this was a nailed-on Don't Join the Army song, wasn't mm -hmm. it? And, and yeah. to change the lyrics, that's, oh. You should see the video. It's astonishing. It's ghastly, really. And they, they've added for the video version lots of sort of war noises and bangs and explosions and rat -a tat tats Oh, all the good bits. Yeah, just, just uh, the good bits of war, yeah. Just to jolly it along while all the squatties are singing along. When um, I saw Status Quo, one of the things that they did that I really enjoyed, and you'll appreciate this wasn't a massive musical leap for them to do, but they went, right, in the next 10 minutes, we're going to do a medley of songs because there's loads of songs that we want to play from a early catalogue, but most of you aren't going to know them because you're here for the hits. And so they just did a 10-minute mashup of loads of tunes. And I mean... It is status quo, so that won't have been massively difficult for them. But I really thought that was quite a nice thing to do. Just a small point of order. They did have a second number one hit because they produced and wrote 
Come On You Reds, which oh. was a number one hit for Manchester United in 1994. It was based on their song Burning Bridges. It's the same chords and stuff, but they rewrote it for the football team. But they produced and wrote and played on that as well. So. And they were on Band-Aids, do they know it's Christmas as well? It's the only individual football club song that's ever got to number one. All right, then. Time for... This is Cast with Flying. It was the fifth of ten top 20 hits that Cast had between 1995 and 1999. It peaked at this position at number four, and that made it their highest charting hit. Band's first three albums all went top 10, but in 2001, a few weeks after the release of their fourth album, which was critically savaged and peaked at number 78, the band promptly split up. They reformed in 2010, they've released two more albums since then, and they're still together today. When you think of Britpop and just generally indie in the 90s, it's almost certain that you go straight to Blur versus Oasis, that's entirely understandable it was rammed down our throats in the media but it's it's a bit of a shame as well because there were lots of great bands and there were loads of like really huge singles so i think it's also a bit of a shame that this is the first legitimate brit pop track we've had there's nothing wrong with this but it's not one of the classic contenders i think if you got an ai to write a brit pop song that gives you the feeling and the sound but without a monster chorus of the 90s you'd end up with something like this uh walk away is more iconic and all right is the one anthem that it feels like every band from this era had obviously some bands had more but cast were decent and this is decent it's just it's not one of the big guns of a very big musical fashioning era this sound has totally come back in fashion as is the style you could have watched this video and 90% of the lads out on a Saturday night look like this. But if you're into this, check out a band called Bull from York. They're very good. And it's at this end of the sort of indie spectrum. I would probably say most Bulls records are actually better than this. This is not a bad song, but the era and everything about the movement that spawned this is better than this particular tune. I don't think it's on the best anthems in the world compilation. And I, I don't have to check because I know for a fact uh, it was all right. It was the cast single that made that. But it might have made, say, the Shine 6 album, which that was a perfectly acceptable series of compilations too. It was a brilliant time for music. It was a fantastic movement. This is fine. It's just not one of the best moments of it, I think. Getting autobiographical for a moment. So in the mid-90s, from a music point of view, I was totally lost. So I had pop as a child up until about 1991. I just loved chart pop music. After 1991, I moved away from the sort of stuff I like. And then I had a short uh, poodle rock phase. I had a shortish Def Leppard, Little Angels, Thunder, Gun sort of british poodle rock phase extreme i used to like anyway till about 1993 94 and then i was just music has sort of lost me entirely and then one day i was in a independent record shop in leamington spa of all places i think probably while i was at uni or shortly after and i bought two cds i bought different class by pulp and i bought a shine album i think it was shine two and absolutely 
credit those two CDs with totally changing my opinion. So from that point forwards, Britpop was just great. I bought almost everything. I loved almost all of it. It was one of those times where there'd be a new Britpop album out every week or every couple of weeks, and you just wandered down and you bought it. It would be the new Pulp album or Supergrass or Echo Belly or Sleeper or one of those. Every couple of weeks there'd be a new one. So, of course, when All Changed by Cass came out, straight down, bought it, you talk about, all right, Fine Time was the one for me. I love Fine Time. I think it's a magnificent record. I actually really agree with Trey. At the time, I loved it. I loved all of it. So this is not me kicking cast or having a go at them and all this sort of thing. Now, listening back, it feels like landfill indie. It feels like it got in the charts because people like me were just lapping up all of the sort of Britpop stuff that was coming out. Critically, if you listen to it back now, there's really nothing special about it whatsoever. It is fine, but it is not earth-changing indie music. I mean, cast had more top 10 hits than Pulp. They were big for a couple of years, you know. I think they did better songs than this, even though it was their biggest hit. I think it's fine. So looking back at it now, I listened to the album All Change of the Day, and it's, it's okay. It passed the time, but I don't love it, and I don't think it has been as enduring as a lot of those other artists were. I'd much rather listen to a Sleeper album today, for example, or a different class or something like that than I would listen to Cast. So I don't think there's anything wrong with it as such, and I loved it and presumably bought it at the time. I don't know, we must have just all got carried away with it in some way and just bought all of it, and it was all a big hit, even though some of it was probably not actually all that good. (laughs) I relate to that, actually. It's really interesting, because I was completely caught up in buying everything that came out every week that was Britpop, and like you, I just automatically walked into HMV on a Monday and bought the cast album, because it was the next one, you know? Simply, there was no further thought needed than that. Now, in the online music discussion circles that I frequent, Britpop is seen as a very bad thing. Shallow, unimaginative, conservative, way too pleased with itself, nothing substantial to say, the nail in the coffin for indie music, if you like. But the thing is, yeah, if you compare mainstream Britpop with the alternative indie music scene that it first arose from, of course you'll find it wanting. But if you view Britpop as pop, it all makes a lot more sense. This is not music for troubled introverts to listen to at home. It's communal music. It's best enjoyed with friends or in crowds. It's a soundtrack for good times. And it was released during a period when a lot of good times were being had probably more so than any time since the 60s, which makes the 60s references in Britpop all the more understandable. And actually, I get a whiff of Mersey beat from this particular song, which makes sense since the bands were actually from Liverpool. If you are of the opinion that Britpop was a very bad thing, you will see Cast as one of the prime offenders. They're a little bit B-list. They don't break any new ground at all. They almost certainly wouldn't have happened without Oasis. You probably bracket them with the Blue Tones, Sleeper, Shed 7. They're at that level. But if you spent large parts of 1996 absolutely caning it with your mates or listening to the Chris Evans Breakfast Show on Radio 1 as you got ready for work and you, you got near the door and you popped your cagoule over your untucked oversized Ben Sherman shirt... 
living that sort of life, then cast will give you a warm glow of nostalgia. There's no art here other than the art of turning out a strong pop tune. The lyrics are the most risable doggerel if you see them written down. But they work fine in the context of the track, and the track is optimistic, anthemic, life-affirming, just as long as you don't start analysing it too closely. I don't think you're meant to analyse this closely. You're just supposed to sing along to it with your mates in a big field in the sunshine. Sorry, sunshine. And there's nothing here that will overly distract you from that entirely noble endeavour. That was me. I was 22. I yeah. got the first job, getting paid living on my own in a flat above a shop to use a pulp lyric had a bit of money was going out buying all this stuff listening to chris evans before you got you know you had to turn it off to go to work in the morning so yeah I fhm or loaded i didn't buy either of those whoa i I thought everybody i thought we did i thought it was part of the uniform no no i was never classier than that trev come on gq then esquire no, I was buying 442 magazine, uh, which was a football magazine, but it was for, like, classy people. <laughs> I was buying Attitude. Obviously, I was buying Attitude. Fantastic magazine, that was. I thought the fact that we both referenced Shine albums, because there was that and the Best Anthems in the World albums, they were major players in that scene. I mean, I'm literally looking at my copy of the Best Anthems in the World ever. That is on my shelf next to my Ewoks Forest Moon of Endor display. That is how important that CD was to me. You know, it was that buzz. Loaded, FHM, Maxim, Chris Evans, TGI Fridays, all that kind of thing. You know, oh, we're part of a thing. Mm. And interesting that you said about, you know, they were conservative. I guess you don't mean politically because Britpop was pretty rock the vote. Oh, we were going to finally get rid of the Tories again, weren't we? And Yeah, it was conservative in terms of musical style. Right, yeah, fair enough. Because it originated from indie music and kind of the point of indie music that it was constantly innovating and breaking the rules and trying new things out of left field. And Britpop was the first time the music that you would have called indie was actually sticking to quite narrow confines. I mean, you know, in a world where genres don't generally make a lot of sense, you know, tech house is not the meeting point of techno and house. Ripop makes more sense than indie because this was the time where indie music stopped being on indie labels because it was huge and carrying on calling it indie made very little sense. You know, Mm. there was a famous indie chart where the Spice Girls were in it because they were on an independent label. Mm. And so, yeah, I think Britpop, it was pop music. It was British. It was, you know, it's a relatively distinctive British sound. They were bands from places that, you know, you know, these guys are obviously from Liverpool. I was meant to be a fan of Britpop. I was a lad. At that time, I do think the idea of, you know, they were knocking stuff out. That's what the pop music machine does. Uh, It happened with the indie revival in the early noughties. There were bands who definitely had a couple of good singles, but their albums stunk because they were just, oh, get it out. Get it out. It's massive. Well, that was when the term landfill indie was coined, wasn't it? Would you like the history of flying in the top 40? (laughs) God, yes. Well, there wasn't a song about flying until 1971. And then Cliff Richard had a hit called Flying Machine. Uh, you got Flying Saucer by The Wedding Present, Flying by Cast, top five, Flying by Brian Adams, 
Talking of football songs, Bluebirds Flying High by James Fox and Cardiff City Football Club. I think that was probably an FA Cup final record, one of those. Flying High by Freeze, Flying High by the Commodores, Flying the Flag for You by Scooch. And the only number one hit about flying, Westlife's Flying Without Wings. No hits about flying until what year? 1971. What year was flying invented? Probably around about then. I don't know. 19... Oh, something. <laughs> yeah, they didn't call it flying, though, then. They called it air perambulation. It was Dave Flying coined the term in 1969, I believe, who we went, look at that thing gliding through the sky. No, I don't like that. There was a track called Flying on the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour EP, which got to number two in 1967, but obviously not the lead cut. All right, let's have... This is I Don't Feel Like Dancing by the Scissor Sisters. It was the six of nine top 20 hits they had between 2004 and 2012. It was their only chart topper, spent four weeks at number one, and it reached number one in eight other countries. In the UK, it was replaced at the top by Razorlight with America. This also marks the first appearance of Elton John in which decade, as he co-wrote this track and he played piano on it. I feel like we've just got to get our views of this out the window really quickly so Mike can tell us how we went to the first ever Scissor Sisters gig in the UK. (laughs) Is this where we're going with this? Could be. Right, Okay. So in 2004, when the Scissor Sisters arrived in this country, I didn't pay them any attention whatsoever because I was much too interested in listening to my shoegazing, bedwetting piano indie at that point. My Snow Patrol, thank you. My Keen Hopes and Fears was 2004, Coldplay and so on and so forth. So when the Scissor Sisters came in, I just ignored it. I never really liked Comfortably Numb or Take Your Mama and just let it pass me by. And then 2006 arrives and I heard this for the first time. Now, it has happened occasionally in your life that you hear a record and you instantly know that it is the number one record. I think I remember hearing It's a Sin and thinking that it's just a nailed on number one record. And the first time I heard I Don't Feel Dancing, I felt exactly the same about it. I thought that is a guaranteed massive hit. And of course, uh, that is exactly what it became. I've never bought a Scissors Sisters album. I do like some of the stuff I like, Fire with Fire, I think is possibly a brilliant track. Absolutely love that. So they're not a band uh, that I've really paid any attention to, not a band I've bought much of their stuff or that I really like, apart from I Don't Feel Like Dancing, which I think is a masterpiece. I think I mentioned this before. It's currently a Twitter thing. You've got to pick your top 50 singles of the 21st century. And this absolutely made my cut no problem whatsoever really easy inclusion piano is fantastic you know you talk about oh no it's one of those songs where if you don't want to do something in modern vernacular you just go no 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 ironing no sir no ironing today right it's just one of those songs that the lyrics have become part of like modern parlance i think i also would say that However much you love I Don't Feel Like Dancing, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that love it because it is an absolute banger, I'll give you a pound if you correctly know all the words. Because I tell you what, you don't. I read the words the other day and thought, for 15 years, I have just been singing absolute garbage along to this song. I would say about 50% of what I am singing is correct. And the rest of it is just like, I did not know that that is what he was going on about. So... 
finally, the 2000s, despite the best efforts of Lennon, McCartney, Gates and Young, finally gets a record that might get it over the line in first place for the first time, I hope. I didn't initially like the Scissor Sisters. It was all a bit much for me. But fortunately, I soon realised I was an idiot. And the entire point of it is that it's all a bit much. That's exactly what they bring to the table. It's just so over the top and oh, it's ridiculously gay. And it's the most fun. Like in the same way that pretty much wherever you go, the gay bars are way more fun than sitting in Weatherspoons. Now, I'm sure... There are lots of people who would rather sit in Weatherspoons, but I wouldn't want to sit with those dicks. Um, Jake Shear's voice is right up there with the greats of instantly recognisable falsetto. Justin from the Darkness, Jimmy Somerville and all of them Bee Gees making up the big four. And as with all of them, it is the borderline preposterous nature of those vocals that is just absolutely key there. This is built for shrieking on the dance floor, but it works equally well shrieking in the shower. You can shriek this around the kitchen. You can shriek this whilst doing 70 in the outside lane of the A64 going past Tadcaster. We've discussed off air having a Witch Decade podcast concert where we get together and go to a show. And if the Scissor Sisters do reunite, there are mutterings about that. We need to move hell and high-pitched vocals to get tickets to that. It's a party classic. It's wonderfully ironic because surely you do actually feel like dancing when you hear it. I don't think it's the Scissor Sisters' best work, but I think it's very, very good it's almost perfect pop music. I think that the falsetto voice that Jake Shears reminds me of most of all is Leo Sayer, actually. Specifically, Leo Sayer, you make me feel like dancing. This almost feels like an answer record to that one. Nick has already previewed what I'm about to talk about. So summer 2003 was the one and only time that I went to see the Rolling Stones. I saw them at Wembley Arena. Absolutely fantastic night. I'll talk about that when the Rolling Stones finally emerge on this podcast. However, they were just the support act in my night because a bunch of people I knew in London said, after the Stones, you've got to come down to Vauxhall. There was a gay club in Vauxhall called Crash and they were holding an electro clash club night called The Cock. And they said, you've got to come to The Cock because there's this New York band called Zizzer Sisters. They're making a lot of noise in the electro clash scene, and it's their first ever UK date. Come and join us. So I did, and they just completely blew me away. An instant fan. And I got home, and I wrote about the whole night, which was fascinating for all sorts of various reasons. It was achingly trendy, that club. There was a lot of observation to be done there. Mark Moore from S Express was the headline DJ. So after the Scissor Sisters, he did an electro clash set. It was, oh, it's fantastic. Anyway, this was a period where anything you wrote in a blog tended to show up really highly in Google search results because Google had just bought Blogger, which is where a lot of us created our blogs. So my report of that night was then for quite a long time in the Google top 10 search results for Scissor Sisters. And about a month later, I got an email from Baby Daddy from the band thanking me for writing about them. I was a bit, oh, pop stars written to me. This is good. My blog, the blog that the stars read. Well, it went to my head. Anyway, the Scissor Sisters were booked in December 2003 to play a gig at The Social in Nottingham, the same place that we saw Tina Deco doing her cover of In the Army Now. 
And I said to all my friends, you know, I never evangelize about music because I've long since realized it has the opposite effect. I said, I am going to break that rule. You must all come and see the Scissor Sisters on Wednesday night at the social. And I got together a large group of friends and we all went down to our slight dismay because it was a school night. And because it was a club night, the Scissor Sisters didn't take the stage till midnight, by which stage we were royally pissed. But that only made it better because we just went crazy. They'd only released one single, but a lot of tracks from the what was to be the debut album were leaking online on MP3 blogs, along with early studio recordings from that Electro Clash era. And I was hoovering them all up. I knew most of the set, even though they'd only released one song. And after the gig, the band just stepped off the stage into the audience and we all just got chatting to all of them. I spoke to all of them. They'd all read my blog post. I particularly hung out with Animatronic and Del Marcus. Anna was absolutely great. Uh, she was talking about the fact they just recorded the video for Comfortably Numb. And from that point on, the Scissor Sisters were my official favourite group, a position that had been open since Faithless started playing arenas and got really boring about two or three years earlier. Scissor Sisters were now my favourite band. I bought everything they put out, including 12-inch picture discs, because they had extra tracks on them that weren't available elsewhere. I ended up seeing the Scissor Sisters, I think, about eight times. That Nottingham Social show in December 2003, has been mentioned by the Scissor Sisters in interviews many times since, because they say that was the night when they realised they were actually going to make it in the UK. And it was because of me and my friends and everyone there, and not just the trendy Electro Clash kids, but the normals that I brought with me, all just going completely crazy. And when they next played Nottingham, they graduated to Rock City. One of them said on stage, was anyone there at the social? And we went, yes, us, us, us. And we hung out with them again after that show. Then when they first played Nottingham Arena, again, they said, was anyone there at the social? And there was a tiny little voice from the sides and like two of us going, yes, we were at the social. So it was a legendary gig. However, as Nick says, I don't feel like dancing was the big one. I agree. The first time you heard it, you thought that is so obviously going to be number one. Came out ahead of their second album, Tada. It's easily the best track on that album because actually, in retrospect, Tada turned out to be rather overcooked, lacking in memorable songs. I fell in love with it on the first listen. I pegged it immediately as a future wedding disco classic. I don't know that it's quite got that status, but it still works well when I play it out, even though it's not my go-to as a sister's choice when I'm DJing. I'm more likely to play Comfortably Numb or Filthy Gorgeous or particularly Let's Have a Kiki from the end of their career. For a song which is all about someone who doesn't want to go out dancing, it is ridiculously danceable. And I was really excited because I got to dance to in a club while it was number one. And the friends I was with that night were all saying, oh, I hope they play I Don't Feel Like Dancing because we really want to dance to it while it's a number one. Because dancing to a song while it was a number one in a club was a thing at a certain stage in life. It kind of cements your connection to that particular moment in pop. I particularly love the double hand clap 
in the chorus because I've become a bit obsessed with double hand claps recently. There was a newspaper article about them. And having read that newspaper article, I just hear them everywhere. Dua Lipa, she does a particularly good line in double hand claps uh, on Levitating. And then most recently on Dance the Night from the Barbie movie. You've got Lizzo about damn time, Patrice Russian, Forget Me Nots, Boney M, Rasputin, Sylvester, Do You Want a Funk, Little L, Jamiroquai, loads more. I found a 24-hour Spotify playlist is just devoted to the double clap in dance pop. And I look forward to playing all of it. It's their most streamed song on Spotify, stands to reason. But I was really surprised to discover the second most streamed Sister Sister song on Spotify, never actually a single. It's a track from that second album. The track's called I Can't Decide. And I think the reason that I Can't Decide has got all those streams, it was used in a really iconic scene in Doctor Who when John Sim playing the character of the master kind of acts out the song she sort of sings the song and it's because it's a song about an evil person and he's an evil person and i think that must be where it comes from there are not enough hand claps in modern popular music for me the danish entry for eurovision 2022 uh fear og flams away ospar hinanden has some of the best double hand claps you could possibly ever hear it didn't even qualify for the final, but it is one of the best Eurovision songs ever. I'm sorry, are we going to get the finale of Mike's piece? Because I can't work out whether or not he likes the Sister Sisters. <laughs> Actually, the first example of a double hand clap might be, it's Northern Soul, isn't it? It's Tainted Love, Gloria Jones, and it's Ardeen Taylor, There's a Ghost in My House, and all the Northern Soul veterans to this day do the double hand clap. That's where it all began. I find with I Don't Feel Like Dancing as well, it's one of those rare songs that, I mean, obviously I've heard it a million times. Every time I hear it, I like it a bit more. Normally you get fed up with a song, don't you? think, oh, I don't want to hear that again and stuff. Every time I hear it, I hear something different in it. I get more excited by it. Do you listen to the radio edit or do you listen to the album version? Because I think you need the album version because it's got that nice, slow introduction. I think that's really important. The radio edit makes a mistake in chopping it out. No, I listen to the bit with the slow intro because then mm. when the piano kicks in, it's really exciting. Mm. Another song that I have danced to on the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square, by the way, on the same mixtape. Older listeners will know to what I refer. That it for the 2000s then. Let's go to... This is Starboy by The Weeknd featuring Daft Punk. It was the fifth of 15 top 10 hits that The Weeknd has had thus far from 2013 up to last year. 10 of those were as the lead artist, five were as a feature. It peaked at number two. It's only had one number one. That was the unavoidable blinding lights in 2020. Starboy has spent 43 weeks in the top 100, most recently popping up in April of this very year. If it was a bit of a shame that the song representing Britpop was the one by cast, I mean, really, it was a bit of a shame that it was the song representing cast. It is a huge shame for me that this is the weekend tune uh, that the randomizer has thrown up. Generally, I think the weekend is brilliant. Most of their music has the best of what is going on with modern pop. It's decent, clean instrumentation, outstanding production, decent choruses. I think it's usually well written. And this one is just a, a festival of beige for me. 
I've no idea what they're on about lyrically. This could be a Drake song and not one of his better ones. Sonically, the production is like a great deal of modern pop. It's perfect. But I think it's a bit too perfect. There's no edge to it whatsoever. It's like they've smoothed all the corners off of something that was already round. I don't think there's a hook to it. I own this, but I don't play it. There are loads of other better options. I'm entirely uncertain what Daft Punk, who were even more brilliant musicians than The weekend, actually do on this track. And I don't care enough to find out. This is three brilliant musicians making something that is, it's like canned soup. It's okay, but I just think they're all capable of much better than this. Listen to Star Girl instead by McFly. Yeah, pass. Or Star Child by Level 42, come to think of it. Or Star Man by David Bowie. Or Eat a Star Bar instead. Do anything instead of this. Star Guitar by the Chemical Brothers. Star by Kiki D. Oh, sorry, oh. Have, I got, have I gone too far there? All right. <laughs> Starship Trooper by Sarah Brightman is better than this. A few episodes ago, we talked about Ariana Grande. Obviously, you know, massive star, loads of hits, really popular, billions of streams. And in some ways, I find The Weeknd are sort of the male equivalent of Ariana Grande in the sense that occasionally they do a banger. But a lot of the time, it sounds like just sort of wallpaper in that it's just sounds like the sound of now. Well, actually, thinking about it, maybe it sounds like the sound of now because they've made it the sound of now. So maybe that's a stupid thing to say. But it just sounds to me like the sort of thing that a modern day Capital Radio would just play nonstop yeah. around the clock. This and Ariana Grande and Jess Glynn and all that stuff. That's not to say that I don't think that he does this really well. I listened to that album that's supposed to be like a radio station with the Jim Carrey the speaking in between and all this sort of thing. And it's beautifully produced. It could not sound more 80s if it tried. But it washed over me a little bit. Now this is where I am going to sound like a pillock. So I think I'm the only person on the planet that didn't lose their mind when Random Access Memories came out. Daft Punk leave me stone (laughs) cold. Get lucky, it's fine, it's catchy and all that sort of thing. But I, Daft Punk don't really do anything for me. I like some of their very earlier stuff. The other Daft Punk and Weekend song is better than this. I prefer I Feel It Coming to this. This I'm a fledgling motherboarding star boy. I listened to it several times, probably couldn't still tell you how it went. And there's stuff from The weekend that I like. I like Save Your Tears. I like, obviously, Blinding Lights, everybody loves that. Take On Me version two. I like some of it, but a lot of it, like Ariana Grande, just sounds to me like modern, mass appeal produced pop. And therefore, this, as Trev absolutely rightly says, wouldn't be in a top 50 of the weekend songs if you had to order them, I don't think. So what a shame. Yeah, well, like so many of the big acts of the 2010s that we've been encountering, I have given a hard swerve to The weekend over the years, as I assumed his music wouldn't be for me. That said, I was paying attention when he first emerged in 2011. He put out a free mixtape called House of Balloons that I heard about, downloaded it off his website, and I enjoyed that a lot because it seemed to me to be doing something new. It more or less invented the genre of alternative R&B, along with Frank Ocean, 
And I liked the sort of indie-esque gloominess of it all. It made a refreshing change from all the brag and the bling that was suffocating R&B. Okay, fast forward to 2016. The weekend is by now a huge star. But guess what? He's not happy and he wants you to know about it. But while he's telling you about it, he feels the need to cite certain aspects of his shiny superstar lifestyle just to let you know that none of these things are making him happy. So we have his flashy McLaren P1 car, which he tells you cost him $1.2 million, and his equally flashy red Lamborghini, and his equally flashy Bentley Mulsanne, which he sits in to listen to New Edition. And his lovely new ebony table that cost him $20,000 and which he's bought specifically so that his girlfriend could chop lines of cocaine out on it. And oh yeah, he calls this girlfriend his main bitch and she's out of your league because he makes more money in a week that you make in a year, he tells us. And oh yeah, he also has a side bitch. Guess what? She's out of your league too. Now, what was I just saying about his first mixtape being a refreshing change from all that brag and bling? Something has changed here, but it's all our fault for making him a fledgling motherboarding star boy in the first place. Look what you've done, he tells us in the chorus eight times during the course of the song, just so we can't miss the message. Before unpicking all of this. I did my deep dive into all of the weekend's hits in chronological order. I was pleasantly surprised. Turns out I like most of them. I like some of them a lot. Yeah, he does eventually move on from that early all R&B sound. And Starboy is said to be the pivotal moment where he fully switched that style. But he's really good at what he does. My main takeaway from the deep dive was, wow, he is so much better than Drake because Drake is always boasting on the one hand and feeling sorry for himself on the other hand. And I'm not having that, thank you very much. So I kind of wish I hadn't started on picking Starboy, because as much as I do like it musically, it's every bit as awful as Drake lyrically. So like Nick, I will stick with the other one with Daft Punk. I feel it coming. That sounds a lot more like the Daft Punk that made Random Access Memories, an album which I loved, and it benefits from it. I must admit, I thought lyrically what he was doing was more along the lines of, uh, I took a pill in Ibiza. So, mm. you know, rather than him going, oh, yeah, I'm so massive and it's amazing. I felt it was a slightly mocking. I don't think he is going, I've got a top bitch and a side bitch. Thank you very much. He's trying to have it both ways. Well, it is something that Drake does that is weird. Drake's got a couple of songs where, you know, if he was being really intelligent and ironic, it's genius, but then you don't actually think he is. But then sometimes Drake does stuff like that. I'm too sexy song and going, hang on a minute, is Drake actually a genius? Because he has managed to sell an awful lot of incredibly bland music to loads and loads of people. I don't think you can do that without being smart. But yes, early with the weekend, I didn't take him really seriously with the lyrical content of it. Hmm. I mean, it would be a bold man to say that he's got two girlfriends on record. <laughs> Wouldn't it? Anyway, chances are not by the time it comes out. Oh, um, he and the main bitch actually split up just before uh, this was released. And there was a side bitch. Uh, well, that's what I've read. Allegedly. 
I'm going to try using that at home. You're my main wife. <laughs> so let's see how we get on with that, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> let's do some voting. Uh, Nick, start with you, please. Uh, yes, lovely. Uh, minus one for the 1960s, please. Oh, no! It's the Trogs in last place. In the Mezzone, please could I put 1980s status quo in the army now and I'm a fledging motherboarding star boy. For the 2010s, in third place, scoring one point, I'm going to put Cast. Not the best Cast song, but so be it. In second place, for the 1970s, I'm going to go for How's That? Love How's That? It's my new favourite thing. To such to the point where I'm going to do a one-hit wonders bangers for my work this Friday, and it's going straight on there. And top place, for the second week running... I'm going to put the 2000s in the top place because I'm determined that it wins at some point with uh, I Don't Feel Like Dancing. We are quite closely aligned this week, Nick. My last place actually goes to The weekend. What nailed it for me in last place was the lyrical content, however ironic it may or may not be. It just knocked it out of the meh. Like Nick, I've got the quo in the meh. I've also got the trogs in the meh. So my top three, exactly the same as Nick. I'm a surprise that I end up putting cast in third place, but it grew on me all over again and it reminded me of happy times and it does what it does very effectively. I really nearly put Sherbert at number one, very nearly put Sherbert at number one, but Sherbert get the two points. Scissor Sisters have to get the full three points. How about you, Trev? easy to get the weekend at last place and it is a shame I think uh, he's capable of much better than that I know a friend who when you were talking about the lyrics a conversation I've had about the weekend made sense because he was like oh god the lyrical content and I'd never really looked into it that much and he won't listen to the weekend and he's like he's a producer he's brilliant and so there you go driving people away there weekend still you're doing alright aren't you meh cast and the trogs Third place, I've got How's That? I really enjoyed it. Second, I'm going to book the trend and I'm going to Scissor Sisters. I really enjoy it. It's not my favourite Scissor Sisters song. And I think Status Quo is my favourite Status Quo song. I don't have a laminated list, but yeah. Uh, so Status Quo at number one. Okay. Right. Feeding those in. Currently in last position, minus two points. The weekend for the 2010s. Fifth position, minus one point. The Trogs for the 60s. In fourth, we've got Cast. Third, we've got The Quo. Then we've got Sherbet for the 70s, second. And comfortably ahead at the moment in first place. Eight points out of a possible nine. Scissor Sisters for the 2000s. 2000s, it really could be their moment to shine, to borrow a phrase from the previous decade. About time they had a winner. Really is. Don't let me force your hands. The choice is totally yours, listeners. Let's have your votes. First, second and third favourite songs in descending order of preference, plus your most bad and hated. All supporting comments, gratefully received, and a pick of them will be read out in the next results bulletin. You can vote via our Patreon, our ever-expanding Patreon. Join our ever-growing community, patreon.com forward slash which decade tops. Make this chicory tip gig happen. 
but you can still vote on X at which decade tops at X. Facebook, search the name of the podcast, you'll get the page. Gmail, which decade is tops at gmail.com. Your voting deadline this time, it's a Sunday this time, 6 p.m. UK time, Sunday, the 12th of November. Right, that's a wrap. Thank you very much, Nick Parkhouse. How's that? Thank you very much, DJ Treff. Oh, no. (laughs) And thank you very much to me. Goodbye. Which decade is Tops for Pops?